From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. Maybe I should speak with him a kind of an American accent because my daughter just watches <laughs> YouTube all the time and only I'll follows people that speak with a kind of a valley accent. So maybe, maybe TikTok is the answer for the fridge. She stated she couldn't serve alcohol before 12.30. Now mm. I said it's non-alcoholic. She said it doesn't matter, it falls under the same umbrella. So she declined my purchase. On Saturday night, Orsi put on Die Hard and that is the quintessential Christmas movie. I'll fight anyone that says it isn't. And uh, so I said, well, if, if Die Hard is on, then it must be Christmas. So we put up the tree. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, Ireland's 1985 Eurovision representative gets an award. The minefield of who does what household chore. And is it ever too early to put up your Christmas tree? Spoiler alert, yes. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that says, Hans, babe, put away the gun. This is radio, not television. On this morning's nine o'clock show monologue, Brendan Courtney came straight out and told us what he'd been up to at the weekend. Uh, had to go shopping yesterday. Um, shopping for what, Brendan? Oh, for one of those unusual things. I had to buy a new toilet seat, don't ask. And I rang my brother-in-law and I said, OK, he's just done a renovation and he's kind of handy, even though he's a network specialist <laughs> in computers. But he does, he can change his own toilet seat, put it that way. I can't as it turns out. I said, give me some tips for buying a new toilet seat. And he said, oh, well, just don't go cheap. I said, OK. He said, you'll go in there and you'll see that's a be toilet seat for like 20 euro. Don't don't go too cheap because they're ill-fitting. And he said, in fact, my dad, his dad, uh, I suppose my brother-in-law's father, so my father-in-law's some relation to me anyway, Harry's lovely man, he bought a cheap toilet seat and it, did, it was really ill-fitting and he wasn't happy with it at all. And he returned it to the shop. Of course, they said, we don't we don't take them back. I'm sorry. And he said, why didn't you take it back? Didn't fit. And they said, well, would you buy a returned toilet seat? And he said, oh, no, of course not. <laughs> but, but we never got to the bottom of the toilet seat replacement. See what I did there? Oh, well, I guess we'll never know. And from there to mm, Formula One, apparently. Grand Prix enthusiasts. My friend Ian is obsessed with Grand Prix, so he does fill me in on bits and bobs. But this was kind of a great story over the weekend. So if you are a Grand Prix enthusiast, don't mind my um, clunky way of telling this story because I'm not that familiar with it, but I do like how this unfolded. So uh, Max Verstappen, who's the lead driver in the Red Bull team, uh, wasn't thrilled that they were moving the Grand Prix to Vegas. Hadn't been... Uh, raced in Vegas since the 80s. So we brought it back to Vegas and, uh, you know, the glitz and glamour of, all, of Vegas and Grand Prix. You can imagine it's a it's a, a very intoxicating combination and very clever. You know, it's all about tickets and sponsorship and that's all great. But he, he, he made it very well known that he was unenthusiastic about the return. But of course, on Saturday night, stroke into Sunday morning, Max was... Verstappen won his 18th race of the season so they're very happy he won the Formula 1 race and uh, his boss is a guy called Chris, Christian Horner who people will know he's head of the Red Bull team and he obviously was obviously managing his team into Vegas and probably putting up with maybe a few strops like basically when there was a practice session last week it was cancelled because it was a loose drain cover like a loose manhole cover obviously maybe on the track and Verstappen made headlines by describing the event as 99% show and 1% sport so he, he made it very clear that he wasn't happy I mean it's so glam now Justin Bieber waved the checker flag you know it's kind of it's high level right anyway he wins 
good man. And there's a great clip of him in his car, still going really, really fast, by the way, which you can see. And he wore a sort of an Elvis-inspired racing, leather racing suit. It's kind of, it's like cute. It's good, it looks good. So obviously he's delighted. He's won the race and all is given out, it, you know, He's won, so just get over it now. So his boss, Christian Horner, played an Elvis track because he comes over the line and, and played uh, Viva Las Vegas by Elvis, which is really cute. But uh, li- listen to what happens. He's all excited. Here is. Have a listen to this. Because you've enjoyed Vegas so much, Max, here's something for you. He's still driving. Viva Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas. Thought you'd enjoy that, mate. Well done. So that's his boss, Kristen Horner, who is actually Jerry Halliwell's uh, husband, who is actually on the show tomorrow. We have a Spice Girl on the show tomorrow. I'm excited. But Kristen Horner obviously just, you know, taking the mick a little bit, having a bit of crack with him. that he's lit, it's a really good YouTube clip of him still whizzing around singing that but anyway he's obviously very delighted and as of, are all Grand Prix fans so that's great The Max Verstappen sings Elvis update fantastic and from there to library renaming fun times at Trinity College Dublin Last week we talked about the fact that um, students basically started a petition to, to rename the Berkeley Library the formerly known Berkeley Library in Trinity College because the philosopher George Berkeley had, they discovered, obviously, um, a history with slavery way back in hundreds of years ago, but obviously that they wanted the name taken off. So, in a very clever way, Trinity College have put a form online for you to fill in to justify the name that you, and why you would like to, you know, to name the library, whatever, because they've had incidents of people voting around the world for different things to be named things. And one example is this, you know, huge polar explorer boat called Boaty McBoatface which is quite funny right so they said they wanted to negate against that and pr- protect it from doing that so earlier in the year a petition to rename it uh, for uh, after Theobald Wolf Tone the leader of the 1798 rebellion was received and it received hundreds of signatures but now <laughs> this is cute rising star Paul Meskel has been touted as uh, calling it the Paul Meskel Memorial Library and what's interesting I didn't know is of course they film normal people um, in Trinity College um, and it, it put it put it back on the map internationally when I, I have a friend who works in Trinity and the numbers of American applications after normal people like went up by 300% after normal people went out so you know it did advertise it well and put it back on the map and it's obviously a, a, a national treasure in, of an institution uh, but also he is a Trinity graduate in real life and I think that's kind of interesting so he, this has this has legs this has legs in GAA shorts. <laughs> the Paul Meskel Memorial Library. What do you think of that? I don't hate it. I'm not going to lie. I don't think it's a terrible idea. Yeah, but doesn't the person have to be dead to have something called memorial after them? Yeah, I think they do. And I'm not sure Mr. Meskel would be that keen once he reads the small print. Meanwhile, Glastonbury has sold out and AirPods are a really advanced technology. Glastonbury tickets 2024 sell out in less than an hour. Nothing new there. But what's interesting is it's showing no sign of slowing down whatsoever. You know, even what the bit of this story that I saw on RT Entertainment actually is uh, the coach travel tickets went on sale and sold out in 25 minutes. You can't even get there to hang out at the gates. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, 
it sold out. They posted on on X, formerly known as Twitter. Our thanks to everyone who bought a ticket, and we're sorry for those of you who missed out. Uh, it, they went in an hour. Less than an hour. Isn't that amazing? So people are really still voting with their feet for events and why not? I've never been to Glastonbury. Yeah, I don't think I could. I don't think I could bear it. I would go if I helicoptered in and then my carbon footprint would be all over the papers and then it would be a disaster. Okay, so if you're going to go to Glastonbury or you go to concerts, do you wear ear defenders? I always think kids look really cute in them at festivals just protecting their ears because from the noise. Well... If you do and you like them, scientists have created headphones that let users pick the sounds they want to listen to or block out. Thanks to new AI algorithm that can lead to superhuman hearing. It's amazing. Scientists, they built noise cancelling types of sound in real time. They can cancel out birds chirping or car horn, horns uh, thanks to this deep learning artificial algorithm. OK, quite interesting. They're calling it uh, semantic hearing. And it'll stream all sounds captured by the headphones to your smartphone. I was just wondering if you could set it to filter out some human voices you didn't like. <laughs> That's a really silly thing to say while you're on the radios. <laughs> um, but like, say, you've, your mum, who's annoying, or your, your, you know, your dog barking. It'd be interesting, wouldn't it? You can actually just have a little button on your phone and while they're talking to you, just turn them off. And they, you can't hear them anymore. They're just white noise. I think that's an interesting development. What would we do without a really interesting development every now and then? The stream of consciousness that is Brendan Courtney's musings on the news from this morning's nine o'clock show. This next item got a sensitive topic warning from Claire Byrne this morning. It's about the household chores. Who does what at home? And how is it decided? Claire was joined by Sinead Fox from the Bumbles of Rice blog and by writer and comedian Pat Fitzpatrick to discuss this potentially minefield of a topic. Pat, when it comes to the breakdown in your house, how do you compare with with your wife or, or how much do you do? Because you work from home, don't you? Yeah, I got caught basically. Um, that's the kind of nightmare <laughs> scenario because I actually look at kind of my friends who go out for five days a week with the kind of I'd love to help but I have to go to work thing but I'm the opposite so very often you know one of the few things my wife will say to me is there's a load in the dish or the washing machine make sure to hang it out later so that's very often the conversation we'd have in the morning I actually tend to hoard I'm starting to hoard chores because I was interested in the text you got from the guy who's he's doing he's organising the clothes for listening to a podcast yeah processing clothes it's a well, whatever. It's a great way to get away from your family, and I've even found like <laughs> I think men now because we have to do the chores, right? We've been made do them. It's fair enough, um, but it's another way of kind of going. Look, I'd love to talk to you, but I actually found myself saying three days ago to, to my son, "Look, I can't talk to you now. I'm emptying the dishwasher," which was pretty weak in fairness because it should be <laughs> capable of doing both. You should really. But it's that thing of in the past where a man could disappear off for hours, you know, into the shed and stuff like that. But now we're Obviously, chores, we're, we're doing chores. So I think, you know, I don't mind doing chores as long as I can deploy them then to say, look, I need some me time. So I don't mind. Yeah. Hoovering can be a great thing as well because, you know, when I'm saying to them, switch off the TV, let's take a screen break and they don't listen to me. I use the Hoover because then they can't hear the television and it's really annoying for them and it gives me some satisfaction, Pat, as well. Yeah. That's rage hoovering, is it? Where, yeah, like, oh, absolutely. Well, the person with the hoover doesn't hear the hoover, but everyone else goes, that person's really angry and they're just using it to wreck my day. 
I said, yeah, that's rage. Where you, you, you end up in the same room for 20 minutes just to make a point. Yes, absolutely. So tell me, how does it break down then do you, in your house, Pat? Or do you do you just do everything or how does it work? No, 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 no. I know I'm, my wife is listening here. She's very careful. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I, um, no, no, no. I, like, I do... Okay, you've said no about five morning. times now, so you're in the clear. <laughs> Okay, all right, all right, all right. So, look, I do, I'm not, I'm not the worst because I'm at home, but like, I, we share the cooking, I'd say 50 50. Um, my wife is completely in charge of laundry, as in what gets washed when. Um, but kind of, she does the executive side of it, but I might hang out a wash and fold it um, because folding is, you can't talk to people when you're folding either. So, yes, well, we figured that out with you. You can't talk to anybody when you're doing the dishwasher and you can't talk to anybody no, when you're folding. No, no, no. Because... Daddy's busy with his chores, leave him alone. I... Um, but generally then, and my wife would, but of course, the other things my wife does a lot of the, because we have two kids, does a lot, does, can she manages that whole situation of play dates and activities and stuff like that. And I'm willing to accept that that's a big, big chore that doesn't kind of get, you know, it's not housework, but it's work. It's, it is. It's, and we'll talk about that in a minute, about the, the, the mental load of all that stuff. Sinead, you uh, get the children to do some jobs around the place, do you? Oh, absolutely. Like with huge resentment and it takes a lot of energy to get up for us to actually get them to do the stuff. But yeah, we have absolutely certain jobs. Everyone, Everybody clears the kitchen in the evening, the five of us. So my husband, my three kids are between 10 and 15. So they're well able to do all the things and the tallest one can reach the high press. So there's no issue with that, putting things away. But we also, we delegated bathroom duties to the boys um, when we realised that really they were the issue um, with with the family bathroom. So there's a little rota. They hate it. We, and I will text them saying, I think it's your weekend and there's a debate over whose weekend it is. And then it brings out a good sibling rivalry and competitive streak as one will say, mm, I don't think that, I don't think he cleaned that properly. So they'll kind of pit themselves against each other with that and kind of, you know, criticise each other for the, the standards. It takes a lot of work, though, to get to that point where they'll actually do it. And I would hazard a guess that you'd be tempted to give up asking them and just do it yourself because it's easier. No, for some things, it just there's there's a hill I'll die on. Like I will. There's certain things that I will just make them do. Um, for other stuff, yeah. I mean, I can only listen to the washing machine beeping so many times before the clothes won't walk out and hang themselves on the line. Um, and I, I have been known to like if they're in a room. Um, I will say, tell Google or Alexa to remind them to do something because I, they're not listening to me because the thing, heads are in phones. So it's like, Alexa, remind the boys to do this. Um, my daughter tends to remember, but she's younger, so she's trying to win the brownie points, I think. Um, but yeah, like there's certain things. I, I've also been known to leave lists, but lists are lists are problematic as well because then it's your job. Like you really want to be teaching them to notice the stuff, like not to trip over the toilet roll. That Like the toilet roll at the bottom of the stairs, it, it isn't a decoration. It should be brought upstairs by the next person going upstairs. Um so the, things like that, just to teach them. And I've been following a couple of accounts that are talking about that, like noticing things. Yes. If you can train your kids to notice the stuff, because if not, you're you're just you feel like you're mm. nagging. You're um, myself, and my husband are both saying, "Would you do this? Would you do that?" Nonstop. You yeah, know? I mean that that is a huge part of it, the mental load. And you'd be killed asking people to do things oh, in the house. And you, <laughs> the annoying part of it is that you, that other person or people in the house don't see the thing that needs to be done. Hmm. The notice and do is what one of the, the 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 ladies who I follow on Instagram, Sam Kelly, she she educates people about that, about breaking the cycle that you notice the job needs to be done because if you don't notice, and in our house it's funny that breaks down fairly evenly because I notice dust 
and my husband notices cobwebs. Mm-hmm. So between us, we kind of, you know, when we're doing a housework blitz, he'd be able to cop where the cobwebs are and he'd get on that blitz. Whereas I'd be look, looking at the dust or the fingerprints on the glass pane and the door going into the kitchen. They are my nemesis. Yeah, see, Nobody Pat, else sees them. Pat, I don't know if, if you see things that are left. Do you have stairs in your house? Pat. We don't actually have no. stairs, no. Okay. Um, Imagine I, you have stairs. Because most people in my house think that I like leaving things on the stairs, like oh. the toothpaste and the shampoo when I've done the shopping, that I want to keep them there. So they'll walk past them 15 times and I'll be the one to put them away. Yeah, I mean, we have to probably... This yeah. is all gold from Sinead there, though, because the, the notice and... Because in our house, it's notice and ignore. Because they think they are <laughs> noticing it. Um but they're ignoring it. But I think ours are, are, are younger than Sinead's. They're 11 and 9. And I think they're at that stage where we just have to go through the hell of nagging to the point where... And I, I get it. You don't... There's a mental energy involved in that anyway. And then you just don't want to be the nag. But um, I think we're going to have to... We're not great at it, to be honest. I I put the shopping away because I couldn't be watching anyone else put it, one of them putting the shopping away because I'm going, well, I'm just going to have to follow oh, with them the shopping. Put, the, you get them the grocery the shopping. Talks with... Yeah, you get them watching the TikToks with the cool fridges. They'll all want ah. Carl Henry's fridge by the end of it. My my ten year old loves putting the shopping away because she loves seeing how the, the influencers with their big long nails line up the juice boxes and line up the you know, the different things. So she's <laughs> all about can I put the fridge stuff away? Honest to God. Yeah, that's <laughs> great though. No, that's but you're right, they won't listen to, it's interesting you were saying about Alexa. Like yes, your kids will listen to Alexa, but they won't necessarily listen to you. And I'd, I'd be the same, like, that if I can get... Maybe I should speak to them a kind of an American accent because my daughter just watches <laughs> YouTube all the time and only well, follows people that speak with a kind of a valley accent. So maybe maybe TikTok is the answer for the fridge. Comedian Pat Fitzpatrick and blogger Sinead Fox talking to Claire Byrne this morning about the fraught topic of division of household labour. On this afternoon's Live Line... Caller Dave told Joe Duffy about some odd issues he had trying to buy alcohol-free wine recently. Dave Fahey contacted us. And uh, Dave, I think the, the, the number that will be relevant here is 0.05%. Dave, good afternoon. Hi, Joe. How are you? Thanks for good. having me on. Yeah, what happened? Yeah, so yesterday, Joe, I was in Wexford Town doing my grocery uh-huh. shopping. Yesterday being Sunday, obviously. I was in around... 11am and I spotted a nice bottle of Santa Rita alcohol free Okay. 0.4% content Right. Um, so every now and again I said I'd treat myself as I gave up um, alcohol four years ago so I right. proceeded to the checkout yeah. and I was refused the sale of, wine, of the alcohol free wine she said she stated she couldn't serve alcohol before 12.30 now mm-hmm. I said it's non-alcoholic she said it doesn't matter, it falls under the same umbrella, so she declined my purchase. Okay. Anyway, fast forward a few hours later, about 2pm, I was in another well-established supermarket in Wexford. Me and my girlfriend were having a browse around, and lo and behold, I spotted the alcohol-free Santorita that I wanted to buy. Okay. In a completely separate aisle called the Zero Zone. Okay, so Zero, okay. So I picked up the wine. And I went to the self-serve checkout. Now, I'm 33 years old, Joe, bear in mind. So I was the individual carrying the non-alcoholic wine. I was the individual at the checkout, and I was the person that was trying to purchase this wine. 
So the assistant on the checkout didn't ask for my ID, but insisted on seeing my girlfriend's ID. Um, my girlfriend produced yeah. a digital photo of her passport on her phone, and she declined to serve me the alcohol um, because she said I could be buying it for my girlfriend. Now, a bottle of Listerine mouthwash has 26.9% alcohol content in it. The bottle of wine, alcohol-free wine, mm-hmm. I wanted, has 0.4% alcohol. That's 67 times less than a bottle of mouthwash. So what's going on in this country? What's, what's the big deal around not being able to buy alcohol-free before 12.30? And why do you need ID to buy it? And just come back to you, you were scanning yourself. Was this a self-service checkout? Self-service, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so if you put a bottle of alcohol up on the self-service, a member of staff is alerted. Yes, it ah, alerts So that's how they came over. That's how they came yep. over to you. Okay, they came over and said, who's buying the, who's buying the drink? And you said... Yep. Me, obviously. I said, I'm the one purchasing it, and she said, "I need, uh, I need to see your girlfriend's ID." And, and I said, did, "But, but, but it's alcohol they, free." Yeah, but how did you know it was your girlfriend? Yeah, well, <laughs> coupled together. <laughs> okay, yeah, it could be brother and sister. Uh, yeah. Father. Um. So they said, "Why, like, did your apart from just saying no, it's, I, I'm not buying anything. Why would I show you my ID?" Did your did your girlfriend have ID? She had a picture of her passport on her phone. She showed her that and she said, we can't accept anything digital. It has to be the real, oh, for God's sake. The real version. Um, so on I the said, one hand, it, they're asking you, uh, hang on, on the one hand, they're asking you to go through a self-service checkout, which is the height of digital and technology. You just scan it yourself and you, you uh-huh. whack your pre- credit card there or whatever at the end. And then they say, no, we can't take anything digital, like, yep, a, like a photograph on your phone. That's correct. Um, I should have asked for a manager there and then, but I actually, I laughed about it at the time. But the more I thought about it, the more ridiculous it sounds. Um, you know, is it false advertisement that they're putting up alcohol-free and then you can't buy it without ID? You know, mm-hmm. I don't know what the laws around this are. Yep, the laws apparently are very straightforward. If if you um, if your product is point um, zero five. That's the that's the alcoholized. You don't need a license to sell it. Okay, um, point you yours was point four percent, so you don't need you you only need a license. Sorry, after point five percent, so you were under the the limit. But surely this is just a shop saying, "Well, we can do what we want to do." It's our shop. Yeah, yeah, isn't it? It's not what they're saying. But, but it but it's alcohol free. More or less, point so, four. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's labelled. Yeah, um, I just low alcohol is no more than one point two percent volume. Alcohol free is no more than point zero five percent. That's one twentieth of one percent. And low alcohol free products are point five of a percent, and there's a half of a percent. 
Um, so if it's above half of a percent, you need a license. But, and you don't have to be over 18, apparently, to buy them. Mm. Um, but is it, is it, you know, some shops now, well, a lot of shops haven't actually, have a cordoned off. You've answered this already indirectly, haven't you, which is zero zone. A yeah, cordoned off had, area for alcohol. Um, yep. In the in the alcohol aisle, there's yeah. these um, doors, push doors, yeah, that yeah, go in and out. And I presume they can this lock. Yeah, completely yeah. away from that, called the zero zone. Zero zone, okay. Yeah. It looks like they were wrong, but I don't know what you can do about it. By the way, what, what price was it? Is it the same? Five euro. Five euro. Five euro. Yeah, well, that's not bad then, because you you discover that mostly, like the the no sin gin, is the same price as the. Commit every sin under the twelve commandments, Jim. Isn't yeah, it? um, it'd be a good price if you could get served. Though. Guinness, Guinness Zero is, I think, around the same price as a can of Guinness. Can of mm. Guinness, well, that's five five percent or whatever. But the, 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 you see, how do I ask this question, Dave? Does your does your girlfriend look under? No, anything? she doesn't. Oh, she, she doesn't. She must have been. Okay, she said your girlfriend. Yeah, your girlfriend, and you had it. Your was your girlfriend bagging the the products for you? No, which I, you, which I, you? I I was the person who brought it up to the till, the self serve checkout. I was the person who scanned it, and I was the person who was about to pay for it. Okay, that's Dave telling Joe Duffy about his experiences trying and failing to buy alcohol free wine in a supermarket. Maria Dahl Couch represented Ireland in the Eurovision in 1985. That's not a pub quiz answer. Because Maria has been chosen to receive the Presidential Distinguished Service Award for the Irish Abroad. The Dundalk native, who lives in France, spoke this morning to Brendan Courtney on the Nine O'Clock Show. Go on, tell me about Eurovision. <laughs> well, 1985, mm-hmm. um, I was chosen. I did the National Song Competition. You know, at the time, it was just unbelievable to be even picked to do the National Song Contest. Of course. I sang a Brendan Graham song. And I Brendan sang Graham, last, just to say, hit. just Brendan mm-hmm. Graham wrote a couple of winners, Rock and Roll Kids, The Voice. Yeah, you, you wrote as well, You Raised Me Up. You and know, that a, wonderful a song, song, You Raised yeah, Me Up. Brilliant. So, mm, I mean, unbelievable. This is a, so 1985, this is a, a, a life-changing moment for you, right? Yeah, and it's live. You know, everything at the time was live with the orchestras and it was just unbelievable to do that, you know, especially where I was coming from, you know, from Dundalk and, you know, I had no managers and I was doing it all by myself and Daddy was helping me at the time. Now, Maria, before you tell me more of the story, can we do something for you? Can you indulge a Eurovision fan here who actually, I watched your performance three times, having read some of the more of the information you're going to tell us in a minute. Can we play a little clip of your performance? Would you mind? Oh, I'd love that. I'd love it. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Wait until the weekend comes Then we'll have what time it takes To sort it out To see it through Wait until the weekend comes Sundays always change your mind And make you How does it feel hearing that? When, have you listened to that recently? And, and, oh, I do with the children. It brings a lot of emotion to me because, you know, I left Ireland, you know, I emigrated. And I suppose when I stood on that stage, I was first on, you know, Ireland was 
opened the competition that wow. year. And I didn't really know what was ahead of me, Brendan, you know, as a child, well, as a teenager. Um, I remember when I came home, I had no family at that because at the time, you know, it just wasn't the thing to do. And they wouldn't have had the money to come over to the Eurovision in Sweden at the time. And Mammy watched it um, in a council house on a wee TV screen. And I remember I rang, she rang me from the neighbor's house because she didn't even have a phone. And she said, Maria, you had stars in your eyes tonight. And all those memories come back. You know, it's a bit like the words of the song. So it just brings a lot of emotion to me, Brendan, a lot. And and there's a, a big element about your person that was is fascinating about what, just even watching that performance. First of all, <clears throat> your taffeta dress is so reminiscent of the time. And you look extraordinary on stage. And you and I don't look blind. Well, <laughs> you can see it. Well, tell me, <laughs> tell me about that. That's just fascinating to me. Well, my lovely little taffeta dress came from pennies. I paid thirty pound for it at the time. Yeah, I, I didn't have any big designers like you making me a lovely dress, <laughs> and um, and I loved it. And then we pair we pair shoes that I bought as well in Dunn stores, and. Um, the, the whole situation was that I went blind when I was nine. Now, in the 70s, there was there was nothing for you if you were blind or if you were different, and especially if you were a wee girl. And they sent me to a blind school to become um, a telephone operator. Now, I didn't want to become a telephone operator, so I, rang, I ran away from Dublin, and I made it all the way home to Dundalk in County Loud. I had a wee medal around my neck, a wee holy that I got at my communion. And I remember I used to hold on to that wee medal the whole way down to Dundalk, and I was 10, Brendan, when I rang away, ran away from St Mary's School for the Blind. And as I held on to that medal, I'd look up to the sky and I'd say, please, God, don't let them find me. They didn't. So from that day on, Brendan, I decided not to be blind. I didn't talk about it. I didn't speak about it. And I pretended to be this little girl that could see, you know, and that. So my mind can see, like my brain, it can see. So I can visualize very quickly when I'm in a place for over maybe five, ten minutes. I know everything straight away. I have a great memory. You actually... Uh, lost your sight at age nine. Is that correct? Nine, nine. exactly. So nine you, and a half. I was at school. Can I ask I how? Did you lose your, how did you lose your sight? Well, what happened was I was just at school, like it was autumn, back to school, delighted to be back at school. And all of a sudden, I was just looking at the teacher, the blackboard, and she was writing on the blackboard. And everything just started going really fuzzy and weird, like fog. Imagine like a thick fog coming in from everywhere. So I put up my hand and I said, Miss, there's something wrong. I, I just can't distinguish anything anymore. And uh, she said, we'll go on home. And I went home and Mammy held, I don't know if you remember this old salt containers at the time. And, and yeah. I think they still exist. You know, the red and white tall salt, yeah. table salt. Yes. And Mam held, Mammy held that up and she said, read that, read what's on that, Maria. And I said, Mommy, I can't. So she took me up to the Ionia Hospital. Now, I didn't know what blind meant. You know, when you're nine, nobody around me was blind. Um, nobody had bad eyesight. I didn't know you could go blind. I thought this was like uh, Doctor Who was going to come out of his telephone box and say I was part of a show, like, you know? Yeah. Um, it was just, I didn't know what was really happening. And then within within six weeks, that was it. It was over. Uh, 95% blind, leaving me with just a wee bit of light, which is unbelievable. I'm still, I still know when it's dark and I still know when it's the day. And I, I think that's a miracle. So you've just given me two big pillars of strength. One is that a year later, with your medal in your hand, running away from the blind school and getting back to Dundalk. And the second is performing first at the 1985 Eurovision, probably when Eurovision 
was at its absolute peak when it was getting... Oh, it was at its... Yeah. But when people watch the performance, and I urge you to go to YouTube and watch your 1985 performance, you take camera direction flawlessly because you didn't tell people you were blind, did you, at the Eurovision? No, no, no. The only woman that knew about it was the, the director, you know, the, the producer. Mm. There was a big, huge uh, cross on the stage where the backing singers would leave me. And she knew, you know, even without me talking about it, by the way, they were guiding me and they'd bring me onto the stage. I did my same performance every time because every morning for a week you rehearse your song. And because I was first on, I rehearsed at eight o'clock every morning. So I did my same little actions and my same little look. And I would wait until the weekend comes and you can catch the tide. And I would put my... So she knew exactly what I was going to do. And she told the cameras what to do. Wow. So it was wonderful. So it made it look like I could see. And and I know like Terry Wogan, because he introduced it on BBC like he always does. Mm-hmm. He never guessed that, that that girl singing was blind. And that was a battle for me. It yes. was and it was and I actually won it, if you know what I mean, Brendan. I won it. And especially when I hope you talk about where I actually came from. And at the time I didn't speak about that either because yeah. I was ashamed. And I never spoke about me and Mammy and where we where I was born. So and it's a shame I didn't at the time. So tell us about that. Where were you born? And, and tell us about what, what the start of your life, because your life could have been very different, couldn't it? Oh, it could have been totally different, but maybe in a worse way, I think, because um, in actual fact, what happened in the 60s, Mammy got pregnant out of wedlock. And I suppose we all know now in Ireland what that meant in the 60s and the 70s. And she was sent to London, Brendan, uh, to hide her pregnancy. And two priests picked her up in London and they brought her back and she was incarcerated in one of uh, Ireland's Madeleine laundries. Now, I know we call the mother and baby homes today. I don't like calling them that, Brendan, because what happened there and what Mammy went through, um, a home is where you're loved and where you feel safe. And it was the opposite. So I was born in a Madeleine laundry and um, Mum was there for 10 months. And that's where I started my life. And I was called Stephanie. My name was Stephanie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, they wanted Mammy to adopt me and give me up. And as they would hold the papers up to, you know, the adoption papers, mm-hmm. the nuns would kind of point at the papers and they'd say, you have nothing to offer your child. You'll be able to do nothing for her. You need to adopt, sign these papers. But there's another battle, another Irish woman that I'd love to say hello to today, my mammy Eileen. And um, she fought like a lion to keep me and she didn't sign those papers. She was willing to stay even two years because after two years, the children were automatically adopted. Um, But she put up that fight and she didn't adopt me. My nanny Isabel from Dundalk at the time taught mammy was in, in, in England. And um, when she found out that um, her daughter wasn't in England, she did, she, she tore down mountains and rivers and everything <laughs> to find out what her daughter was. And she found us. Wow. And when she found us, she signed us out. She signed us out of the home, out of the Madeleine Laundry. And that was it. I was free. Mammy and me were out. And um, and that was the beginning of my story as Stephanie. And then I became Maria because my nanny had 12 children. And the youngest was Stephanie. And she said to Mammy, there's no way can we have two Stephanies under this roof. We have to call her something else. And Mammy said, we'll call her Maria in memory of her father, her Spanish father, Teodoro is- Gonzalez Gonzalez. The fascinating story, or part of it anyway, of Maria Doyle Couch, as heard on this morning's Nine O'Clock Show. Forty-eight percent of the population of Ireland have health insurance, but how do you know whether you've got the best deal or not? 
About one million people are getting renewal notices over the next while, but Dermot Good of TotalHealthCover.ie told Clareburn that the renewals have come at a particularly bad time for customers. Probably couldn't come at a worse time um, given all the spate of increases, but what's happened now is all the insurance companies have increased their rates at least twice during the year, and that means that there's average increases of approximately 15%. Uh, coming people's way. So a lot of consumers forget that the rates went up earlier this year um, and then they went up again in October and so forth. And they're also, I think, misled slightly by these average figures. So they'll see there's an average quoted of maybe 3%, but their plan might have actually gone up 6 7 even 10% in some cases. So I would say to all of your listeners right now, right across the board, irrespective of which insurance company they're with, They need to brace themselves. There is a big increase coming their way. But once again, if they shop around properly, uh, for a lot of people, particularly those on the dated plans that are maybe on the market 10, 15, 20 years even, they can actually avoid these increases completely. But I think everybody now, last year we got away lightly um, because, in fact, last year they gave money back to us in some cases. But no, those days are gone now and there are big increases coming. And you have a good little ready reckoner for people factors that you might want to consider which would indicate that you are on a poor value for money plan like if you're on the same plan as you've been on for five years but also if you're paying more than €2,000 per adult. Yeah, if somebody is paying more than that amount of money, Claire, there should be a very specific reason why they're doing that. And for a lot of people, there isn't. It's simply they've rolled over what we call auto renewals. They've rolled over their cover each year for the last five or ten years. And a lot of older people in particular They're not aware that the legislation fully protects them. They think they'll have to reserve waiting periods. Absolutely does not happen. They think that they will be penalised in some way. That definitely never happens. Um, And in fact, when I talk about switching, a lot of people listening to this now will think, well, he's going to recommend I switch to a different insurance company. 50% of all people we speak to get better deals with the same insurance company. So what they don't realise is that new plans are being launched all the time. If I'm on the same plan for 10, 15 years and I've never looked at it, I have missed those goalposts, move a small bit each year. I am way off the target. Mm-hmm. And and there's nothing, I always say to people, look, there's no harm in shopping around. You can stay on the same plan if you wish, but you will be shocked sometimes when you find out some of the deals that are out there that you are missing. That And by the way, it doesn't matter. I'll talk about corporate plans in a moment. Every plan on the market is available to everybody, irrespective of uh, their age or their gender. And by the way, Claire, as well, Companies, small businesses listening to this, they're all overpaying hugely because they're afraid to make any changes. They're very busy. But like if they're overpaying... If they're paying for their employees, you Exactly, mean. yeah. And if they're overpaying for their employees, let's just say by 30 40%, which is not uncommon, particularly for small businesses, um, that means their employees are paying way over what they should be paying in terms of benefit and kind charges and so on. So... Everybody now, I have to say, is going to have to do their homework. And, and there's a, like we're not talking about saving 50 or 60 euro. Some of those older plans, people could be overpaying by anything from 750 to 1,000 1, euro per adult. And that's not an exaggeration, particularly for the older plans. Okay, so good savings to be made. We have so many questions, as we always do when you are, are in here. So let's get to them. My parents are elderly, they're in their late 70s, and they don't have private health insurance. What are their options to get cover at this age and how much approximately should it cost for the two of them? That's from John and Donegal. Okay, so the thing about it is everybody, irrespective of age, 
can join health insurance, they will be subject to the same five-year exclusion on existing conditions as a 26-year-old. So that's the good news. The bad news is they're going to be hit by the maximum age loadings, which in their case will add 70% to the cover. Um, and there's no getting away from that. It's a penalty for joining at an old age. Unless, Claire, they had cover previously, if they did, it's very important, they dig out details of that because they get full credit for it. Three really good corporate plans for them to start at. Um, health Guide 1, Irish Live Health, VHI have the PMI 5210 and Leia have the Inspire scheme. Now, all those plans will cost around anything from roughly €1,300, Claire, but they are good semi-private corporate plans that give money back on routine expenses. Now, one little bit of good news for them... Is that 1300 per per person? Excluding the loading. So they're probably looking Ah. at €2,000 each. Um, so that is the bad news um, because of their age. And I would encourage anybody who maybe is approaching 35 now with no cover, get on the ladder before you turn 35. Otherwise, those loadings kick in. If those, if um, that person's parents do join, if they join those corporate plans, they give 50% back. With VHI and with Leia, the 50% back on consultants and x-rays kicks in immediately, even if it's a pre-existing condition. So it's not all bad news. But unfortunately, they'll have to weigh up paying €4,000 each maybe being excluded for five years against just the actual likely return on the plan. 4,000 so. 4, uh, overall, it's two, it's 2,000 each, 2,000 each, yeah. And um, does that loading continue into year two, year three, year four? It will stay with them for 10 years, Claire, oh. and there's no way around okay, that. Okay, that's um, a tough one yes. um, for John to take and for his parents. The next one is a single man aged 59. I can spend €1,400 Euro on health insurance. What's the best plan? Does he need to spend €1,400 Euro on health insurance? That is That really is the key question, first of all. Look, the fact that he has that budget. Now, bear in mind, 59, so that person is 25 years over the age threshold. They will have a loading as well on their policy of about 50%. I would suggest they start with a mid-level plan. So mid-level plans cost around €1,000 and they cover you for public and private hospitals without any of the extras. So given their budget of 1400 they should check out Benefit Access 300 with Irish Life Health or the VHI, and I'm sorry about these names now, VHI Enhanced Care 350, or the Leia Signify scheme, all costing around €1,000 with their budget. That should also cover the cost of the loading. The as names well. are crackers. It's like what you'd name widgets, isn't it? it I could be making all this up there, but, <laughs> but you won't know till later, you know. But uh, No, but these are the names of the plans, you know. I don't know who designs these names. VHI, most of their plans have numbers on them. You know, like PMI 01 up to PMI 60. Mm. They're all good plans, by the way, as well. So it's it's not for the faint-hearted. I would suggest, once again, some advice for your listeners. You know, if they're, if they're confused by this, don't be. The best thing to do, what is your budget? So irrespective of your plan or the shock you get when you open that, that notice, decide on what you can afford to pay. Phone up your insurance company right now and tell them, that's my budget for next year. There's my plan. They'll have all your details on the system. And get them to basically find the closest equivalent plan to what you have that fits your budget. Yeah. And you're not compromising your negotiating position by telling them your budget because all the rates are the same for everybody. They're set centrally. It's not like car insurance or home insurance where there's some wriggle room and they have discretion. There's no discretion. So doing it that way will get you the best deal. Dermot Good of TotalHealthCover.ie talking to Claire Byrne about health insurance options for people this morning. On this afternoon's Ray Darcy show, Lisa Tracy shared what she got up to at the weekend with Ray. You have done what over the weekend? I have put up my Christmas tree. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. 
Now, is this is there a date that you always put up your Christmas tree on, or Christmas tree on, or is this new? No, I, I always have it up by the 1st of December and then this year I was sick over the weekend, still am sick and I was kind of bored so I said, do you know what, I'll put up the tree and I saw that there was two other houses in the whole block had uh, their trees up too so I said, oh, I might as well. Uh-huh. So I did. You did? Um, yeah. And was there one particular thing apart from the fact that you had time in your hands, was there something else that... Uh, was a catalyst uh, for this? Well, on Saturday night, Orsi put on Die Hard, and that is the quintessential Christmas movie. I'll fight anyone that says it isn't. And uh, so I said, well, if, if Die Hard is on, then it must be Christmas. So we put up the tree. Mm. Uh, Jerry in Galway is not too happy. Oh, dear. The Christmas tree, up the day before Christmas Eve, down the day after St. Stephen's Day, no other decorations allowed, no candles, no cards. Hate it all. Thoroughly depressing. Hate the build-up. Hate when it's over. Roll on January. So looking forward to it. Jerry and Galway. Oh, God. I don't know Jerry. No. <laughs> That's like when you're off in America and you're in a bar in Boston and they go, where are you from? I'm from Kildare. Oh, do you know? No, there's like, you know, 100,000 people living in You Kildare. usually do end up knowing somebody. Yeah, well, I suppose two, two degrees of separation in Ireland, isn't it? Um, yeah. So, so, and you don't mind the fact that there's a big lead-in now. Uh, it's the 20th. No. It's more than a month of Christmas. You're going to be looking at that Christmas tree. Will it not get tired by Christmas Day? No. It's no. like, I mean, it's a fake tree, number one. So mm-hmm. that's, it's not going to shed or anything. So that's a good thing. Um, and I love Christmas anyway. So mm. we just love the season. And also Galway is like Christmas central already, like since November the 10th when the Christmas market opened. And uh, every single shop has their Christmas decorations up. So, yeah. you know, you have to... You have to Share the joy and spread the love. Now, is it uh, monochrome or multicoloured? Yours? It's multicoloured. It's it's the classic green, red and gold. Yeah. Uh, and the lights, are they, what, what are they? What colour are they? Uh, they're, they're warm, warm white. They're like candles. Okay. And do you go flash or not flash? Oh, no flash. No flash. On all no. the time. Right. Okay. On all the time. Uh, and what about photographs? Have you got little things with photographs in them? Little... Oh, no. Decoration? No, none of that. No, but I have a decoration that I bought in, I think it was Arnott's in 1994 or something like that, that I still have that little Rudolph and I still have that on my tree. Okay. And you don't, because a lot of people have these lovely traditions where they buy one decoration every year and add it to the tree. No, you have that one from 1994 and that's it. Yeah, well, other people have bought me decorations, Uh so I put those up. Right. And do you have a favourite one of all? Um... My favourite one is the Rudolph. Is it? Because I've yes. mined it for like, and it was on my mom's tree for forever. And then I robbed it off that tree and then now it's on my tree. And you say a number of your neighbours have Christmas trees up? Well, two out of about a hundred. Oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's See, not bad. Yeah. I, I was talking to a few people, first of December for a lot of people. Um, yeah. In our house, it's the 8th of December or the nearest Saturday to the 8th. Yeah, that's the same as my sister. She's not too uh, impressed with me yeah. putting up my tree. <laughs> and, and then in other countries, it's a bit like Jerry. They just put it up at the last minute and take it down immediately. Which, oh, I, that's no fun. No, well, it, 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 there's a lot of effort just for a couple of days, isn't there? I know. You know, taking it yeah, down from it, the attic or get, out of the shed get, or whatever. If you get longer out of it, then it's better. Yes, yes. Yeah. Value for money. Yes, yeah. Mm. Mm. Okay. Uh, the best Christmas movie was an RT2 on Saturday Night Die Hard. Vinny and Mayo is with you on that one. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, well, it's out there now. Uh, you have yours up. Let's see what everybody else thinks. And, and uh, get well soon. Thank you. 
uh, not very well, Lisa Tracy telling Ray Darcy this afternoon that she put up her Christmas tree over the weekend. Eh, I'm not too sure about that, but certainly can't fault her movie logic. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, bullying doesn't always stop in the playground. Claire Byrne was joined this morning by Patricia Murray, work psychologist with the Health and Safety Authority, and also by Sinead Brady, career psychologist and author of Total Reset, to discuss bullying in the workplace. And Patricia gave us a legal definition of workplace bullying. It was developed some years ago by a task force set up in the early noughties, actually. I was on the task force myself. It took some months to come up with the definition because it is very important that you kind of, you know, constrain or contain a, a, a concept by definition. So bullying is a repeated inappropriate behaviour, which sounds simple in itself, but it has to be repeated, it has to be inappropriate. And then it goes on to say, perpetrated by one or more people against another, but that a reasonable person would consider to be undermining their right to dignity at work. So there's the reasonable person test there, which is in other things, a kind of quasi-legal definition. So it has to be something continuous, not a one-off incident. Exactly. And each of the behaviours, because re- recent uh, legal definitions in case law in Ireland, and the Supreme Court said it has to be destructive to the other person, it has to be serious and it has to be repeated. Each of the behaviours has to be repeated. Mm-hmm. Because the Health and Safety Authority has a, a list of examples of behaviour that do. may mm-hmm. constitute bullying. Will you just run us through those? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a huge list and none of them are exhaustive. So somebody listening who might think they didn't mention mine, it's not to diminish anyone's experience of it. But usually it's kind of a, a, a really a, a, the gamut of things. I mean, isolating a person, spreading rumour about them, overly criticising their work needlessly and the way that a person is criticising them would be undermining, diminishing, making sure other people hear, making them look bad. It's usually quite a series of events over time that one person is perpetrating against another. Now, it isn't the regular correction. It isn't, I don't like the person. It isn't a once-off incident. And sometimes people like to put everything into the bullying kind of, you know, definition or kind of concept. It is really a a distinct thing on its own Mm -hmm. and very hard to prove. So when complaints come forward in your experience, what level of them of the complaints actually constitute bullying? That's a really great question. In fact, I was speaking at a, at a FORSA event there last week and this came up. And this is anecdotal, I suppose, but when only some complaints come to the Health and Safety Authority, others go to, say, the Workplace Relations Commission or other agencies. I would say that, you know, in my experience, about one third fit into the absolute definition. About another one third fit into something is wrong and there's a conflict and there's difficulties in the relationship and there's power imbalance. And then another one third are mistakenly, they're not. They're not. They're neither. They're not. They're, they're, not. they're something else. Okay. That this, this is being used as a way of progressing something that needs to be progressed, but it just doesn't fit in. So about 30% fit the definition that we've just spoken about? I would say 30, 30, 35, yeah. 30, okay. 35. All right, Sinead, to bring you in on this then. So the impact of bullying on the person who is the victim of the of the bullying, can you just talk us through how it can affect people? Sure. So as Patricia's saying, you know, bullying is a very nuanced behaviour, but it's about the impact that it has on the person who's been bullied or who is experiencing the toxic behaviours. So this can, you know, it can start as been very simple that you become a little bit irritable, that you're just not yourself. Um, sorry, um, that you're just not yourself um, and that you're actually involved in maybe you're not eating very well, you're not sleeping very well. 
there's a number of different things that are presenting a psychosocial. You're beginning to isolate yourself from others. You're beginning to feel that maybe there's something wrong with you. You're questioning your own behaviour. Um, so there's lots of different ways that it can present. But then over time, it, it can compound and, you know, your sleep can be very, very badly impacted. Your relationship with others can be badly impacted. The feeling of not wanting to go to work can become very prevalent. Um, but equally, um, we have people that have extreme burnout, extreme anxiety, stress. So, it, you know, it's it's quite a spectrum of presentations and behaviours mm. and impacts there. And are you seeing it in particular sectors? Because we would imagine bullying to be more prevalent in high pressure environments. Yeah, so bullying is prevalent in high pressure environments where there is, uh, I suppose, a, a an environment of work intensification. And what I mean by that is where 100% billable hours, where it's getting the work done at all costs, irrespective of the impact on the person. So so they are environments that we often see um, bullying behaviours, but equally public sector. So sectors like education, nursing, um, schools, hospitals, shops, actually. Um, and interestingly, it's not always a peer or somebody who's in a position of power. In hospitals, we see that it can often be sometimes patients that are bullying nurses, doctors, medical staff, you know, there's abusive behaviour or we can see that in shops. So it's it's very nuanced um, and it's very complicated and it may not always be the people and the places that you expect it to happen in. Is that a, a new, I'm just struck by the fact that you mentioned education and, and schools yes. and we know that there's a lot of pressure in those environments. There always has been, but particularly now because we have such a shortage of teachers. Is that a new phenomenon? Sadly, no, actually. Um, so education has been one of the sectors that has had the highest prevalence of workplace bullying um, over many, many years. And that will be borne out in research. Um, now, it, as Patricia said, it may not always be reported, but it is the experience of bullying behaviour. So, yes, um, this is something that you would see in education, mm-hmm. you would see in um, health sector as well. Patricia, what about you? Do you agree with the sectors listed out there by Sinead or is there anything you want to add in terms of where you're likely to see this? Yeah, I mean, I think that I agree with Sinead in terms of all those sectors, but also, as she said herself, we need to be careful because some sectors are more educated about their rights and about the fact that this shouldn't be happening and therefore they speak up and they make it known and that's how we know because mm-hmm. they're, you know, they have unions or they have representative bodies that speak for them and then you would wonder about the vulnerable groups who don't have representative bodies that speak for them and are they also experiencing bullying? So, you know, we have to always look at it with a bit of caution but certainly I would say that the, the, it's really important to say to people the effects of bullying on people. I mean, sometimes it has been in the past trivialised as if it's it's not a real thing or it's some lightweight thing. Like when you, when you, for instance, can't sleep, it really affects your social behaviour and it really affects your ability to concentrate. So you start doing your work maybe less well because you haven't slept. And then you're f- feeding into this idea that you're not, you know, that you're, you're not performing as well and you're wondering if, gosh, is it them? Is it me? Is this happening? And another thing that happens with, with all disputes, whether it's bullying or, or couples disputes or anything is, you, you, you come across some biases, like attribution bias, for instance, and that we see this a good bit in bullying complainants. What happens is if you're being overly surveillanced and you're being watched and you've been criticised, then you sometimes you attribute other people's looking at you in a certain way as if they're also thinking that you're not doing well. And so you attribute things to people in the workplace that maybe they're not doing because you're so feeling overly... So you know, you're, you're paranoid because you, you're, you, you you're, do you're become, so affected by what's, yeah, what is happening. Yeah. You're biased in your judgment of the world and you're biased in how you're being seen by other people who are maybe not related to it. And you can f- start then building up scenarios in your own mind. And also, if you overly concentrate and think about a thing, you'll find it. Mm-hmm. 
So you go into work thinking it's going to be dreadful. Then you, something maybe that happens that's innocuous, you interpret it as more dreadful than it otherwise would yeah, have been. And there's nothing worse if you have to go into somewhere five days a week and you're dreading every time you have to walk in that door. That's not a good place for anyone to be. And not only for the person, actually, because research done by the University of Galway and UIG there by um, a colleague found that those who witness bullying or negative acts are also in fear of going in because they have conflict, cognitive dissonance in terms of, gosh, I can't do anything to help. I feel guilty, but I don't want it to happen to me, so I'm keeping my head down. So usually there's a lot of bystander problems and the bystander bystander wants to leave or get out of the department or not engage and the person who's the target can feel that that bystander is then also avoiding them Mm -hmm. which in a way they are but not because of anything bad. Patricia Murray work psychologist with the Health and Safety Authority and Sinead Brady career psychologist and author of Total Reset talking workplace bullying with Claire Byrne this morning. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shirodon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE Radio app. Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck. Aunt Babe, put away the gun. This is radio, not television.